Welcome to Courts and Capital, an occasional podcast series from the Sacramento Bureau of the Daily Journal. I'm your host, Malcolm McLaughlin. The Me Too movement has hit California's capital hard. Three male Democratic lawmakers have already been forced to resign in the face of sexual harassment or even assault allegations. Even the now former chair of the Legislative Women's Caucus now faces legal actions and a labor-backed effort to defeat her re-election bid after facing her own allegations. In the wake of these scandals, some critics have argued that the legislature has imposed new regulations on other employers while failing to address its own issues. Others have noted that the political world embodies many of the dynamics that have led to harassment elsewhere, but the very nature of working for an elected official makes the power disparities difficult to change. Today, we'll speak to three attorneys, all women, with experience in this arena. Wendy Musell is the board chair of the California Employment Lawyers Association and a partner with the civil rights law firm Sturton Musell. Micah Star Liberty is the founder of Liberty Law Office in Oakland. She has represented plaintiffs in numerous sexual harassment lawsuits including current actions against the California legislature. Finally, we'll speak to Jeannie Harrison, a well-known employment lawyer in Los Angeles. She is currently representing one of the plaintiffs suing movie producer Harvey Weinstein. We'll take a deep dive into some of the relevant case law affecting sexual harassment claims for both public and private employers. We'll also try to get a lawyer's eye view of what it is like to go up against the legislature and other public entities in these types of cases. Before we get started, a quick reminder that this podcast can be found on iTunes and in the podcast app on iOS devices. Listeners to this podcast can also receive California CLA credit if they fill out a short true-false test on the Daily Journal webpage where this podcast appears. I reached out to the California legislature to see if they wanted to provide a lawyer to answer some questions as well for this podcast, but they did not respond. This podcast was also recorded before the California legislature passed a new comprehensive sexual harassment policy last week. First up is Wendy Musell. Since 1999, she has represented plaintiffs in employment discrimination and disability cases. She is considered a pioneer in discrimination cases brought by people infected with HIV. Musell has also spoken at many forums about workplace legal issues, including at law schools and recently in front of hearings of the California legislature. Welcome to Courts and Capital. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I got interested in speaking with you after watching you testify at a legislative hearing back in February, and you had a number of very specific recommendations for what they needed to do to change their culture and bring themselves more in line with uh, standard practices in other workplaces. So that really raises the question, how is the legislature different from other employers? That's a great question. The legislature is very different than other public and private employers. It's one of the only workplaces where your boss could be elected official, such that he or she is only uh, responsible for themselves, meaning there's no other supervisory uh, structure over them, meaning getting a lawmaker removed is extremely difficult. There is no, in a normal workplace, if there had been an issue regarding sexual harassment, let's say, by a lawmaker, in the normal workplaces, if a supervisor engages in, in workplace harassment, sexual assault, discrimination, or retaliation, they can be fired. Not so when it comes to lawmakers. Additionally, the separate member offices hire, discipline, and fire staff internally. So it's like many, many workplaces with no real oversight. This 
exacerbates an already large differential of power, meaning that the, the members are not beholden to anyone but the voters. So there's no real way in which to address if there's systemic issues happening in a lawmaker's office with one of their, with the member themselves. So any policy and procedure has to take into the unique features of this workplace into account. Um, and I had recommended for these reasons, because there already is a large differential of power, this is already exacerbated because there's no obvious means to discipline elected officials, that there be a strict zero tolerance policy, which would make it even more important to discourage future harassment and to encourage complainants and bystanders uh, to come forward. There's been a lot of talk that the legislature has, quote, passed rules for everyone else without applying those rules to themselves. Is that something that you can speak to, to actions that they've taken in recent years that have maybe changed your practice, uh, but they didn't apply the rules to themselves? Well, I think that's a problem, absolutely. Meaning that uh, the legislature, for example, uh, in terms of their maintaining records. You've probably heard that they haven't been maintaining these records regarding prior complaints. Uh, that's one of the areas that differ from what the legislature indicates applies to itself versus other employee employers in the state of California. Um, unfortunately, the legislature often will pass laws that it will not um, apply to itself. This also occurs in the whistleblower context. This is especially problematic where we see that there are numerous uh, members that have had complaints of sexual harassment, discrimination, and, and retaliation against them, and no real means in order to address it. What are some of the types of records that I would have to keep as a private employer that the legislature doesn't require of itself? Well, in terms of personnel records, the legislature should be keeping those as, long as, as well as every other employer. But, for example, the legislature has not been keeping or consistently keeping complaints against members or staff regarding sexual harassment. When these issues occur, um, it's pretty haphazard as to how they respond, whether they're concerning prior complainants. Uh, in California, an employer has a duty to take all reasonable steps in order to address issues of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. I don't know how the legislature could do that if it's not keeping any sort of systematic records as to who's made complaints, have those complaints been investigated, what has been the response to those complaints, have any members uh, been disciplined in any way or admonished in any way. Um, these are things that in any workplace would be records that you would want to keep in order to perform your duties under the law. Now, in covering these and reading about some of these cases, there does seem to be a lot of he said, she said, and, you know, which is obviously not a legal term, but it brings you know, home the idea that there is maybe not great record keeping going on, at least, you know, especially in some of the, the very oldest cases that have come up. Yes, and this, of course, encourages future... Um, conduct that is illegal under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, the California law that governs non-discrimination, harassment, and retaliation in employment on the basis of sex, race, sexual orientation, for example. Um, so if you have a lawmaker, let's say, who engages in sexual harassment serially against members, interns, 
Um, if you are not taking any steps to investigate those issues, if you're not writing down those complaints, then, you know, there could be four, five, six complaints, and suddenly, you know, this looks very different than the first, let's say, complaint where it might be more minor conduct that could be corrected. Uh, the biggest reason I think that a lot of people at the Capitol don't proceed with litigation is because of the backlash and the retaliation against them, in addition to issues of clarifying the law, meaning the Fair Employment and Housing Act does apply to the legislature. There's uh, differences in legal scholars whether whistleblower laws, although certain of those have been passed that explicitly include the legislature, but one of the largest things I hear from complainants concerning cases against a particular legislature member is, are they going to get work in Sacramento ever again? Um, will they find that they make a complaint because they don't want the conduct to continue against them or to continue against others? Will they find that they're out of a job and unable to get future employment, um, even at other lobbying firms or assisting um, any other member? So there's definitely a concern and a culture of retaliation that needs to be addressed in addition to the issues regarding whether the law needs to be adjusted or legislation um, passed to make it completely clear that the legislature is on the hook like any other employer if they engage in discrimination, harassment, or retaliation in the workplace. It almost sounds like what you're saying is the legislature you know, was never quite as exempt as it pretended it was and just got away with it by acting a certain way and having a workforce that might not fight them on some of these cases. Yes, I think that's right um, to a large extent, meaning that if you have a workplace where retaliation is alive and well, you are going to depress the amount of complainants that are willing to come forward, whether they're bystanders who saw the unlawful conduct or individuals who are subjected to the unlawful conduct directly. Um, if there's no policies and procedures that are effective are in place, people are not going to come forward. If your investigation processes um, are not clear if the roles of the investigator, the qualifications and experience, if there appears to be conflicts of interest or bias, individuals are not going to come forward. So, unfortunately, what I've heard over and over, uh, victims and survivors of sexual harassment, discrimination, and retaliation at the Capitol, is that once they have made complaints or made it known that they were subjected to unlawful conduct, it became harder and harder to perform their job and or they fired altogether. One of the legislature's first responses to these scandals was to pass AB 403, the Legislative Employee Whistleblower Protection Act. This is a bill that was carried for four straight years by Assemblywoman Melissa Melendez, a Republican, I might add. But some have said that this bill is actually not all that significant. Could you address that? Well, it, in terms of the Whistleblower Protection Act under Labor Code 1102.5, I personally believe that the legislature was already subjected to that um, law and continues to be subjected to that law such that the new legislation that was passed, um, while a good step forward certainly, did not go as far as 1102.5 does in terms of whistleblower protections. It would 
be a wonderful step forward if the legislature simply made it ex explicit that, yes, they are covered under Labor Code 1102.5, just like every other public employer. You recently testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee in favor of two bills designed to address workplace sexual harassment. Can you tell me about those? Yes, California Employment Lawyers Association was. And one of the bills uh, that we were testifying to and our co-sponsor for is SB 1300. And SB 1300, the author is Senator Jackson, I'm very happy about. It, this sprung out of prior testimony that we gave regarding whether there are judicially created obstacles in the law related to sexual harassment, specifically the severe or pervasive standard. And in that hearing, uh, I had discussed that the history of sexual harassment, specifically under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is the federal law, indicates simply that it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions of or privileges of employment because of a of such individuals, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, that's at 42 U.S.C. 2000E2A, if anyone's interested, and that it was in the U.S. Supreme Court's case, Meritor Savings Bank um, versus Vinson, and that in 1986 that the U.S. Supreme Court had declared for the first time that sexual harassment in the workplace is a form of discrimination based on sex and therefore unlawful under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Our state law actually indicates sexual harassment as an independent basis, yet sexual harassment is still sex discrimination. It's a form of sex discrimination. And we had talked in that hearing, part of my testimony was that the factors related to the judicially created construct of the severe or pervasive standard, that this was created um, judicially, that this is not within the statute, either federal or state law, that those, uh, the severe or pervasive test had evolved in a manner that made it less and less likely that victims of sexual harassment would, would find justice, specifically uh, factors regarding how often it had to happen, the frequency, severity, whether it was physically threatening or humiliating, or, quote, mere offensive utterance. Additionally, the judicially, the judicially created doctrine is saying that is this just an isolated or occasional or sporadic or trivial, one of my favorites, as if sexual harassment could ever be trivial. And there was a number of cases under state and federal law that demonstrated how destructive this doctrine is. For example, under Kelly v. Conco, and the legislature did fix this, and I might add under a bill that was co-sponsored by the California Employment Lawyers Association, but in that case, Kelly v. Conco, there was multiple sexually explicit comments by a supervisor describing violent sexual acts, for example, indicating he'd like to perpetrate on a male subordinate while overseeing his work, and that was found not to meet the sexual harassment standard because for same-sex sexual harassment, the court had indicated that somehow we have to show sexual desire. Now, the legislature luckily came and said, no, you don't have to show sexual desire. It's about power. You don't have to somehow delve into the mind of the sexual harasser to make some sort of determination whether he or she harbors a secret sexual interest in the person they're sexually harassing. Another example is the Lyle versus Warner Brothers case. And this was 
the Friends case where it was about the writers on the Friends popular uh, show, which you may recall was on the air for, I think, eight or nine seasons. In any event, Lyle was a former writer's assistant, and she sued the producers of Friends and the writers of the show alleging causes of action under California's Fair Employment and Housing Act for race and gender discrimination, racial and sexual harassment and retaliation, where her male supervisors pretended to masturbate in her presence, displayed a coloring book with female cheerleaders with their legs spread apart, frequently requesting a um, a blowjob, and altering the words on scripts to create such words as tits and penis. The California Supreme Court had held that uh, Ms. Lyle had failed to establish sexually objectionable work environment that was sufficiently severe or pervasive to support a hostile work environment and a sexual harassment claim. And one of the things that the court did in that case, which I think was especially destructive, was it, it looked at that particular workplace and said, well, if you're going to work in Hollywood, you're going to work on a writer's show, you better expect that sort of banter is how they looked at it. Um, Rather than saying, in that context, there was no reason for uh, those requests for sexual contact with her and that the commentary was not to her, was not made in the context of the the writing on the show. But in any event, the court found it was not severe or pervasive. Or one of the worst cases, in the Brooks v. City of San Mateo court where a male coworker forced his hands under a 911 dispatcher's sweater and bra and fondled her breasts for the duration of an emergency call that she was trying to take. And in that case, the court found that conduct of uh, the dispatcher being fondled under her sweater on her breast did not alter the conditions of employment. Now, the person who did the fondling was subjected to uh, criminal prosecution and did have to serve some time for that. Yet, the court found that was not severe or pervasive enough in order to meet the standard for sexual harassment. So looking at cases like this, we thought, you know, this is a problem. We shouldn't have different jobs, different justice. A sexual assault can never be deemed trivial, sporadic, or unimportant. And Senator Jackson took some of the information from that hearing, we're very pleased to say, and in SB 1300 uh, addressed a number of things. One, should the legislature require that all employees receive sexual harassment training and education, including bystander training intervention as a part of the training, and prohibit a release of claims or non-disparagement agreement between employers and employees under specified circumstances, which would lower the training requirement from, to be provided to any employer with five employees or more, as opposed to 50 includes specifically bystander training, and also provide further guidance as to what the severe or pervasive standard ought to be, and specifically that it follow the Harris case. And so I'm very happy to see that. I'm very happy to see that the training requirements are being sought to be increased to five employees or more, which is, it's, 
you know, under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, you're, other than harassment, where it's one employee or more, you have to have five employees in order to be covered by the Fair Employment and Housing Act. And so this would mean that anyone covered by the Fair Employment and Housing Act would have to provide that training. And that the training would be provided within six months of the employee being hired and once every two years. And that it also discussed the failure to prevent causes of action. So an employer is required to take steps to prevent harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, uh, specifically in this case, harassment. And here, it, this SB 1300 would indicate that there is a cause of action for failure to prevent even if you don't ultimately prevail on your sexual harassment claim. So it doesn't require sexual harassment to already have happened before there would be a claim and a requirement that an employer um, take steps to ensure that doesn't occur. I've heard an attorney say that it's as if the standard evolved from severe are pervasive to a standard of severe and pervasive. The, the standard is still severe or pervasive. However, I think many courts, it depends if, which judge you get. If you have a judge, the judge who handled the, the Brooks versus City of San Mateo case, Ninth Circuit judge, was recently retired from his post after having numerous sexual harassment complaints. So it comes as no surprise that perhaps his, uh, the decision is as it was, indicating that, you know, in the plaintiff's bar, we call it the one free grope case, that you can have one grope under um, a sweater and that that isn't severe or pervasive. Other judges, I'm sure, might have looked at that case and said, that's a sexual assault one time that is severe, and that's enough in order for you to meet your standards. So the problem is, is that different courts are viewing the same facts differently, which is leading to vastly different decisions under the case law. So if you're on the defense bar, there's a number of cases, some of which I've already um, listed, that you would pull to say, look, it's an incredibly high bar in order to meet the severe or pervasive standard that this is not a civility code, that any workplace you have to deal with a certain amount of discomfort and discussion regarding possibly sexual matters, and that that does not rise to the level of severe or pervasive under the law. And in that, they would look at the frequency, severity, and, and make the argument also that it was just merely an offensive utterance. It was isolated or occasional, or it was a stray remark. So a stray remark being, yes, they said that sexually explicit thing or that discriminatory comment, but that one comment doesn't indicate some sort of discriminatory bias. And we hear that a lot. Now, in other areas of law, you wouldn't be able to get away with the stray remark doctrine, meaning if you're making a, a statement that is direct evidence um, regarding discrimination, harassment, or retaliation, you wouldn't be able to sweep that comment under the rug by simply calling it a stray remark and indicating, therefore, it has no evidentiary worth. Mm -hmm. A stray, so, stray remark that I'm going to withhold your wages or a stray remark that I'm going to kill you, I mean, those are... Those are both still problems, even if only made once. Right. That's exactly right. Right. And in both cases, um, they would be direct evidence. So, for example, if someone says, I'm going to kill you, and then lunged at you, the statement, I'm going to kill you, 
you would be able to likely get that in <laughs> in order to the intent of what the individual meant to do when they lunged at you. If someone says a sexually explicit comment and then says another one a month later, in my cases what I've seen is that the employer attempts to say, well, that's a stray remark, that's occasional isolated remark, and that that doctrine regarding um, stray remarks, sporadic, trivial comments has evolved and um, allows direct evidence of discrimination, harassment, and retaliation to be ignored by the courts. Now, so that's the problem here is that these judicially created doctrines have made it much more difficult for um, an individual who's been subjected to sexual harassment or discrimination in the workplace in order to address it effectively through judicial means. So you could come in with a case where you have, like the Brooks v. San Mateo case, and any attorney would have taken this case who specialized in employment law, where you have someone who's performing some sort of supervisory duties, he sexually assaults in front of other people, a plaintiff, the plaintiff complains, she then finds herself out of a job or retaliated against. I would have taken that case, I'd still take that case. However, and the person is prosecuted and finds the perpetrator is prosecuted and for sexual assault. To me, that case comes in, you take it because it's an outstanding case. You already have that, that individual has already met a much higher standard um, under criminal law culpability. So one would think if you have criminal law culpability related to a sex crime that you certainly should have civil culpability as it relates to sexual harassment. But that's not what happened in that particular case. Um, the case was ultimately thrown out, um, summary judgment, which is a tool that's been used in order to get rid of these cases that really should be decided by a jury. A jury should be deciding is is it sexual harassment to be sexually groped in the workplace? I think most jurors would say absolutely yes. I think people would be shocked to hear that one could be groped sexually in the workplace and it not be considered sexual harassment. These cases, in my view, should not be subjected to the same percentage of being thrown out on summary judgment that they are. I had talked about in my prior testimony before the legislature regarding federal judge Nancy Gertner, who in, in 2014 had written an article regarding um, summary judgment motions and referred to summary judgment motions as a virtual repeal of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, and how Title VII has been gutted. And she reviewed studies as well as anecdotal evidence from Georgia as well as other uh, across the nation. But in Georgia, 94% of cases dismissed in part who had counsel, 81 completely, and racial hostile work cases uh, dismissed 100% of the time. She, after she looked at Georgia, she then looked at studies where there was similar anti-plaintiff effect in the Ninth Circuit, which is a circuit that we're in, the Tenth Circuit, the Second Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit, and the First Circuit, um, lest we think that we have different practices than Georgia. And she had found a verdicts in favor of employees reduced on remitter than the verdicts in any other types of cases. And she further looked um, to see how evidence is trivialized even of explicit bias, so the same types of things that we were discussing about. And the cumulative use of these doctrines creating a, quote, atmosphere of impunity where discriminatory behavior will be tolerated 
and will not expose the employer to risk. Over and over, the opinion suggests we will give the benefit of the doubt to the perpetrator, excusing his conduct while subjecting the victim's perceptions to a higher standard. So I think that that is exactly what happens in sexual harassment, discrimination, and retaliation cases in California, same as Judge Gertner had found under federal law with the Ninth Circuit, is that employment law cases, particularly discrimination, harassment, and retaliation cases, are disproportionately subjected to summary judgment motions that are thrown out in court before they ever go to a jury. So the jury can decide whether or not the conduct rose to the level of sexual harassment. I think that one of the things that SB 1300 does is indicate that as the Court of Appeals indicated in the Nazir versus United Airlines case, which is a 2009 case, that harassment cases are rarely appropriate for summary judgment. And so SB 1300 would uh, indicate that, well, these cases really, generally speaking, there's general there's material issues, genuine issues of material facts, such that they should be decided by a jury. So what are some of the arguments that defense attorneys are using in these cases to get them thrown out on summary judgment? The same doctrines that we discussed here that Judge Gertner had found had a, a disproportionate effect on employment cases. Mm-hmm. So in that case, the question was, is this severe or pervasive? Okay. Um, and did the employer, because this was uh, the individual who had assaulted uh, the plaintiff in that case, was he a supervisor or wasn't he a supervisor? If he's a supervisor, it's subject to strict scrutiny. If it's not, um, then did the employer know or reason to know um, regarding uh, the, about the conduct of the person who engaged in sexual harassment. And so what the court found is that they looked at whether this incident was severe, and the court amazingly said Brooks did not allege she sought or required hospitalization. Indeed, she did not suffer any physical injuries at all. Now, if you were to ask any woman if a coworker who had supervisory duties came behind them while they're taking emergency phone call and fondled their breasts, whether they found that to be a physical injury, I think 99 out of 100 women would say yes. I think men who were subjected to similar conduct would say the same. Um, So in that case, they found that she was not physically injured, this was not severe, she was harassed on a single occasion for a matter of minutes in a way that did not appear her ability to do her job in the long term, especially given the city took prompt steps to remove the the person who engaged in this conduct from the workplace. So they looked at this was a single sporadic event, that the plaintiff didn't have any long-term psychological damage. She wasn't injured physically, the court indicated, although the plaintiff had testified, actually, before the California legislature and very clearly indicated that there was psychological damage and described how she felt when that event occurred, and, and certainly it's not consistent with the court's opinion. Wow, you have given us a lot to unpack in this episode. Thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you. 
Wendy Musell is a San Francisco-based employment lawyer with Stuart & Musell and chairs the California Employment Lawyers Association. Next up is attorney Micah Star liberty She takes discrimination and abuse cases as the owner of Liberty Law Office in Oakland. She's also a former winner of the Street Fighter of the Year Award from the Consumer Attorneys of California. Liberty currently represents a former staffer who sued the Senate, alleging retaliation after she reported sexual harassment that had happened to a co-worker. Thank you for uh, coming in today. It's my pleasure. I have uh, been following your career, especially closely lately, because I cover the legislature and you keep suing the legislature. <laughs> Members of the legislature, legislators, there's a lobbying firm also in there. So I, today I really wanted to kind of focus in on what you know, what is involved in suing the legislature or suing uh, other parts of state government and how is it different from suing a private employer? I think the initial thing that we should start with is that there really aren't any differences with respect to employment law claims. The differences with respect to normal torts are the same that you would see with any public entity. So to file an employment law claim for violations of the Fair Employment and Housing Act, so those are things like discrimination, harassment, retaliation, uh, you have to file a claim with the Department of Fair Employment and Housing within one year of the last bad act. And you can either ask the department to investigate or you can get an immediate right to sue letter. There's actually legislation pending right now. Eloise Reyes has introduced some legislation um, which would increase the amount of time for victims to file with the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. What's the bill number on that? It is 1870, AV 1870. And um, that would change the period from one year to three years. Then once you get your right to sue letter, you have a one year time period to file your lawsuit. Um, with respect to torts, for example, defamation or negligent infliction of emotional distress, the types of claims we see that correspond with employment law issues, for example, if you want to make those claims against a governmental entity, you have to file what's called a government section 910 tort claim form within six months of the bad act. So you file the claim with the appropriate body within um, 45 days, the public entity will either send you a rejection, meaning we've looked at your claim and we've rejected it, or they will sit silent and the law says if you receive no response, the claim is deemed rejected within 45 days. There mm -hmm. is a common misperception mm -hmm. perpetuated, I understand, by the training that goes on in both houses that they are above the law or excluded from FIHA or the Labor Code or other um, other venues or avenues to sue them, but that's just not true. There is one piece of legislation with respect to whistleblowing, mm -hmm. uh, the California Whistleblower Act, which has a specific exclusion for legislative employees, which I have to say I think is shameful at this point, mm -hmm. and they really should do something about that. In lieu of, actually, I think they would have to delete maybe three words right. from the statute to make it apply to legislative employees. Instead of doing that, um, they passed just this year, AB 403, the Melendez bill, which is geared towards confirming rights that already exist under the labor code mm -hmm. um, and elsewhere, which say essentially that the legislature is not above the law when it comes to right. sexual harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. I 
know, though, that in the cases that we're, my office is going to litigate, one of the first things we're going to be asking for in discovery are copies of the trainings that the legislature has provided to employees on employment law topics. So we'll see how they're being trained. My guess is the training is probably compliant with most aspects of the law. It's what the underlying inference is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't expect to see a PowerPoint that has a misstatement of the law. But what I know from talking to, I think my office has spoken with 56 individuals who have uh, either employment or other relationships with the Capitol and have had claims of retaliation, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and other kind of general retaliation claims, for lack of a better word, both men and women. So these cases all center around either sexual harassment, sexual assault, or a retaliatory act, whether it's the denial of other rights like medical leave or time off when you're a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault. So the the law is clear. Each of these cases is different though because these cases are fact determinative. So my office spends a significant amount of time interviewing our clients, their family members, co-workers who were willing to speak with us, usually former co-workers who were willing to speak with us, and then other people uh, in the community who have knowledge of the same facts or information. I do want to make a distinction between what my office does and what the investigators on both sides uh, of the building have done. They are looking, from what I understand, for policy violations, not necessarily every legal violation that could have occurred. The information that's being made public now is pretty um, selective and appears to be, at least on the Senate side, allegations that have been both sustained or substantiated and are also against either a member or a high-level employee, mm-hmm. high-ranking official. But what we know is this happens on all levels in both houses. And um, quite frankly, the uh, failures in the investigatory process lead to litigation. And it's really unfortunate. But you know, if folks were really digging into what happened and trying to document and trying to really unearth the sources without engaging in confirmation bias during the process, Um, we could probably avoid a lot of the litigation that's coming down the pipeline. What we need to see is some sort of legislation where there is a balance between tracking and documenting and sharing, disclosing to the public unethical, illegal, discriminatory, and harassing conduct. That has to be weighed against, particularly when we're talking about past reports and past investigations, some level of autonomy for the complaining parties or the victims. One of the things that we um, always look for is is whether or not there was retaliation for bringing a claim. So we look at it under FIHA, obviously, because FIHA protects retaliation. We also look at it under the Labor Code, and that's Labor Code Section 1102.5, which essentially says an employer may not retaliate when a worker brings to their attention a violation of the law. I have seen cases that are what I would call kind of a wobbler sexual harassment case, but the retaliation is so overt and so devastating 
that it's essentially a retaliation case. And of course, they're usually defended like a sexual harassment defense case mm -hmm. um, point gets missed that really what we're talking about is whether or not there was sexual harassment. This person reported it and then they experienced some sort of adverse employment action. Well, first of all, it starts because there's a lack of or failure to train about retaliation. A good HR department is going to understand that the biggest risk is the retaliation always. And so they'll be training people on how to avoid retaliation. I mean, even the appearance of a retaliatory motive for any sort of employment action can be hugely expensive and time consuming for the employer and it's devastating for the employee. Well, what, what would decrease the number of cases that we see is some um, earnest attempt for those who have decision-making authority to talk to the victims and or their lawyers to say, how can we get this resolved with an openness to accepting some responsibility? Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good note to end on. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. That was attorney Micah Star liberty who represents plaintiffs in employment and civil rights cases as the founder of Liberty Law Office in Oakland. Our final guest on this inaugural episode of Courts and Capital is Jeannie Harrison, the owner of the Jeannie Harrison Law Firm in Los Angeles. She is well known for pursuing sexual harassment cases and may be best known at the moment as the attorney for the former assistant to disgraced movie producer Harvey Weinstein. We delved into some of the legal issues that she encounters in her work, from the maze of LLCs that define the entertainment industry and make it very hard to sue, as well as cross-jurisdictional issues that came up in the Harvey Weinstein case. Welcome to Courts and Capital. So I read that you went to law school thinking you were going to be an international human rights lawyer, and then you took a uh, sharp turn after taking an employment law class early in law school. When I went to law school, I, I, I had an employment law class, and I learned, I really didn't know about sexual harassment and, and the laws against it when I went to law school here in California. And I, I learned that that was all illegal, all that stuff I'd been subjected to. And I thought, oh, gosh, really? I can go and protect. I can, I can try to vindicate victims of this kind of behavior. That sounds awesome to me. Before we get too far into your thoughts on sexual harassment in California state government, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the Weinstein case, in particular some jurisdictional issues that you have run into recently. So federal courts can have jurisdiction over cases in one of two ways. Either there's a federal question that's raised, which would mean that it's a federal claim, a claim under federal law, or number two, that diversity jurisdiction is, is uh, involved. And diversity jurisdiction means that all of the defendants, are di they do not have the same state residence as the plaintiff. We were in federal court on diversity jurisdiction, and it... Diversity jurisdiction requires that every member of every LLC and every every then. And so you. But in California, in California, we're going to file in state court every time. Okay. So because we don't, we don't have those we don't have those issues. Our cases will get to trial, you know, in California in a fairly speedy way, and we're going to be proceeding on uh, California state law claims that we were to file in California. So we may as well proceed in state court. But so you refiled the case against Weinstein in New York? Yes, um, we refiled in state 
court because we were not able to establish Got it. Okay. diversity okay. jurisdiction with all the member LLCs. So, sounds complicated. It is. And it really is. There was, it was, there was nothing related to the merit. It was really a jurisdictional and procedural issue. The same case was filed in state court the next day. So you basically ran into a hidden maze of LLCs, and that kind of got you in trouble on some of the interstate issues? Uh, with a private company like the Weinstein Company, you know, all of that information is not publicly available. And once we got into the diversity analysis a bit with opposing counsel, it became clear that one of the member LLCs is a California, has a California domicile. So... That is a complicated answer to the question of what happened in the federal court. It turned out that one of the LLC members who is on, essentially who is part of, I guess, a member of the LLC of the Weinstein Company was a California resident in its business for we could not proceed on a diversity jurisdiction basis in federal court. That is a that is a total like law nerd. So when you're going up against some of these entities that consist of a maze of LLPs and LLCs that kind of have relationships and that come together and come apart, uh, not only is that a moving target in terms of suing the entertainment industry, that's increasingly what U.S. employment looks like overall. Indeed, and that's where we often are left to file against many different defendants because we have to we have to make sure that we are uh, we're essentially filing against the appropriate defendant and there are arguments that often get made in the middle of the case that you've got the wrong defendant and so we've got to make sure as counsel for the plaintiff that we get the correct defendant and that you know sometimes that's um, an issue of making sure that the net is cast widely enough and then oftentimes it's actually you know oftentimes difficult to see the correct name of the entity because these various employers and joint employers because it's one of the legal theories is joint employer and that's where for example a little bit more sort of basic i'm going to give you an example which is with those uh, staffing agencies a staffing agency to do the hr the hiring the hr function disciplining because the company doesn't want to have an internal HR division or department. Yeah, in a situation like that, if a woman is sexually harassed by her boss, for example, it is likely that an attorney is going to file against both the corporate employer and the staffing agency, essentially the temp agency, because it is likely that both are actually employers under the law. And then we have to litigate those issues with regard to both companies. And we would be, for example, if we if we didn't name one and we litigated the case and we tried it, and at the end, basically, the jury and or the judge ultimately said that we got the wrong entity as the defendant, then we could be sued for malpractice because we didn't do our job competently. So these are things that certainly we, we have to keep in mind. And it does get complex. And yes, there is a reason why there are LLCs and LLPs in corporations, because they are protective of the individual owners and members of each one of those entities. Right. It's a, la- a legal layer in between, which um, yeah, oh, seems like in the entertainment industry has been 
very much exploited over the years, or at least uh, plaintiff's attorneys would argue. So it certainly does complicate matters. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you gotta. You, you have a lot of hoops to jump through before you even get to the merits, often. I know you've been following a lot of the proposed legislation going on in Sacramento right now, and I've actually seen you testify at hearings for some of those bills. Can you talk about some of that? Right. So there are like half a dozen different bills, I think, at least, mm-hmm. um, you know, regarding sexual harassment in the Capitol. And in part, you know, I know that there's, for example, a, a whistleblower bill that basically says if, if employees of the Capitol and basically, what do they call it, the third house, report sexual harassment. Lobbyists, yeah. Yeah, the lobbyists. Exactly. I think that I think it's referred to as the third house. So, yes. um, but lobbyists report sexual harassment, and they're not to be retaliated against, right? And so, so there are definitely there's legislation where hopefully some of these loops are going to be closed, the loopholes are going to be closed. But as a plaintiff's attorney, I mean, I'm definitely going to argue that the law applies to Sacramento as well as private corporations. And there are certainly areas in which, as a governmental entity, especially as a governmental entity employer, there is essentially an exception to liability. For example, if, you know, this is a, this is a, this is kind of a gnarly thing here, is that under California law right now, to be actionable sexual harassment, conduct has to be severe or pervasive. Severe would be, a a very clear example of severe would be rape. That's severe. That's as severe as it gets, right? So what is or, you know, in the disjunctive, so or uh, pervasive. So it can be less severe. So, for example, hey, baby, you look really hot in that skirt today. Why don't you wear skirts more often? So if it's that single comment and nothing else is ever said, that under under California law is very unlikely to rise to the level of being actionable sexual harassment. And um, instead, it would have to be pervasive, meaning it happens, and and, and courts are going to say, well, we know it when we see it in terms of what pervasive means. And and so it happens a couple times a week, or it happens, you know, every time the, the victim sees the perpetrator or something like that. Okay, so severe or pervasive. Now, if you are a governmental entity employee in Sacramento, for example, and if it rises, if the sexual harassment rises to the level of severe or pervasive, then you can file a DSEH complaint, Department of Fair Employment and Housing, within one year of the last bad act, and then file your lawsuit within one year um, after you receive a right to sue letter. Okay, there's a lot of really, like, longer stuff, okay? Right now, the legislature has a bill to expand the statute of limitations, is what what it's called, for a claim like that from one year to three years, which would be fantastic because we know that it's very difficult for people to come forward and report these things. It's incredibly scary. You've heard it from, for example, the testimony of the victim in Sacramento at that hearing. Now, the separate thing is, if it doesn't rise to the level of severe or pervasive, then there may still be some other claims that a governmental entity employee may want to try to pursue. However, under, so other individual tort claims, uh, 
of emotional distress or something like that. But they have to file a claim, a tort claim with the state within six months. Totally different statute of limitations. So these are, there, there are minefields all over the place for victims. Well, Jeannie Harrison, thank you for joining us on the inaugural episode of Courts and Capital. And that brings us to the end of Courts and Capital, Episode 1. I'd like to thank the three attorneys who joined me, Wendy Musell, Megastar Liberty, and Jeannie Harrison, all of whom I know are very busy people who are very in demand. I'd also like to thank our production staff here at the Daily Journal's Weekly Appellate Report. Nick Perez provided key editing help and production advice. Please keep an eye out for future episode at iTunes, the podcast app on iOS devices, or directly through the Daily Journal website. And don't forget to sign on for California CLE credit. You can find that link at the Daily Journal website as well. I'm your host for Quartz and Capital, Malcolm McLaughlin.